G'day beer lovers, thanks to Cry Malt, this is Beer is Conversation and I'm Pete Mitchum. This week I would like to treat you to a two-part chat I had recently. One that I had with Scott McKinnon from Wolf of the Willows and another with Derek Hales from Bad Shepherd Brewing. Uh, the lads share a brewing facility in Melbourne South which is fast becoming more popular by the week and both brands are growing their audience um, with solid core ranges as well as innovative seasonals and limited release brews. They've each just launched beers that uh, may lay claim to being Australian firsts. First, I speak with Scotty about a collaboration with the internationally recognised Lark Distillery in Tasmania, which goes both ways, and then to Derek about the brewery's first all-Victorian beer and discuss the possibility that it just may trump another well-known local beer with similar claims. Enjoy the conversation. And here we are with Scotty McKinnon out at Wolf of the Willows. Scotty, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. G'day, Prof. How are you doing today? Mate, very well, because as I walked in, uh, Lockie handed me a, a can of your magnificent Australian pills, so doing okay at the moment. But talk us through what exactly is going on here at Wolf of the Willows as we speak. Kids in a chocolate shop at the moment, Prof. Uh, we're having the joy of decanting the Imperial JSP from... A bunch of Lark uh, Distillery whiskey barrels from Tassie. Uh, so this has been a collaboration we've been working on for. Well, we've been working with these guys for a couple of years now, and um, did our 2017 Gabs beer with them. Uh, and since that point, of I suppose been um, shadow boxing about some different concepts of how to probably link in together between beer and spirits. Uh, so we came up with a, a little uh, idea called the Barrel Exchange Project, uh, which for those familiar with uh, the Glenfinnick IPA project uh, and also more recently the Jamison's uh, Cask Mates. Basically, we, uh, we went down to Tassie, jumped around in their uh, storage or well, cool stores where they had all their barrels and wine thiefed out of... Um, yeah, too many barrels to remember, but uh, managed to, over the day, identify some select um, uh, well, whiskies that we felt uh, would really marry well with an imperial version of the Johnny Smoke Porter. And uh, when they were ready to be decanted, um, Lark took the whiskey out and then we managed to fill them with the imperial JSP within seven days. So pretty unique uh, undertaking there like most of the barrels that people get in Australia if they're bourbon or you know port barrels from Spain or a light they usually probably haven't had a liquid in them for six maybe 12 months and uh, obviously a lot of the flavor profile that uh, was originally in there is probably evaporated by that point. Uh, Scotty most people I guess would probably uh, be aware of things like Innocent Gun where a beer was put into to barrels in order to create a barrel-flavoured beer. But this is unique in that it's actually, like you say, the exchange, as it, as it suggests, um, is a two-way process. So we've got barrels where the whiskey has just come out, and like you say, they're going, the beer's going in quite wet, so it's going to take on more than, than just the barrel. What, what's the other part of the equation? So what we 
probably eight weeks ago now, we actually decanted two of the barrels that we'd taken from Lark. So I took our beer out of those barrels and then put a little bit of whiskey they'd sent in there just to make sure it was all sanitary. And then we shipped them back across the Tasman and they filled them with a distiller's cut whiskey uh, just to finish it off for four to six weeks in order to uh, take on some of the JSP flavour characteristics and also obviously from the barrel as well. So um, very much that exchange of the barrel being the the vessel that we both use but um, getting different flavour characteristics um, with the uh, for the whiskey and also for the beer. We'll get a little bit more into the, the beer in, in just a moment but I'm, in, I'm intrigued You've, uh, as I say, you've had a relationship with um, with Bill and the guys down at Lark, obviously ongoing now. But I'm guessing back in, when it started, you didn't just kind of, I don't know, Google, um, uh, you know, well-known Australian distillers and then ring them up cold and say, do you want to do something? How did the relationship actually start? We actually had a fundraiser at uh, the Tap House for a mutual friend, um, Steve. And uh, that evening... Uh, we just propped, Renee and I just propped on a table with uh, the distillery manager for Lark and um, uh, got chatting and uh, probably two months later he came back to Melbourne again and uh, went out for dinner, had a bit of a further chat and uh, since that point we've just um, probably had similar visions of kind of what we wanted to achieve and uh, there's been... Uh, Craig's actually moved on from Lark now and then we were dealing with um, Ben for quite a while but uh, Lark's desire to try to partner with breweries and create unique beverages um, yeah we've been lucky enough that we've been one of those uh, they've obviously worked um, quite recently with uh, Sailor's Grave as well so um, I believe Sailor's Grave and ourselves are the only breweries to get proper Lark I suppose official release barrels so yeah. Scotty, those who are familiar with your fine work will also know that um, as well as being a brewer of um, unique genius and insight, um, you're also a bit of a history buff. Um, the, the name Wolf of the Willows obviously comes from that, uh, you know, was it Pliny the Elder who, uh, who first noticed the, the willows being choked essentially by the, the, the wild hops like a wolf. Um, Talk us through what's important for you um, more than just the liquid, which we'll get to in a sec, but how, how, how does the, the history buff in you kind of uh, relate to this? I think barrels have always been the, the vessel that alcoholic liquids have been uh, stored in and transported in. You know, I think most people who will be listening to this would be familiar with the whole concept of IPA and some of the fallacies around that, but... Uh, still a good yarn um i think and particularly in australia we we have such a strong um and prosperous wine industry and it you know barrels are a vital component of that and uh like we we love stainless here but uh having something that's got probably a bit more character and and is you know each stave is unique um i think that probably appeals more to us they're a pain in the ass to work with but um and Scotty, uh, history is great uh, to follow, but all history begins somewhere. Is this, to the best of your knowledge, is this the first time that an actual exchange program with barrels has gone on or has it been done before? Uh, I 
don't believe it's occurred in Australia. I may be wrong. Um, we, you know, this is not an original thought. We, we looked at what Glenn Finnick did with the IPA and um, uh, that their IPA release and went, well, why can't we do that in Australia with obviously top quality distillers and obviously a few good breweries floating around as well. Uh, I'd say it's unique in Australia, but I'm not sure about globally. Uh, look, there'll be a, there'll be a keen, avid uh, listener to this podcast who will um, either confirm or deny. Uh, I'm sure before uh, before the iTunes reviews start coming in, um, mate. Let's talk about the beer itself. So, first of all, for those who aren't familiar, perhaps with the JSP, so the Johnny Smoke Porter, talk us through the actual beer, then how you've imperialised it and then what you hope um, is going to happen when it comes in contact with the whiskey and the barrel. So, for us, we... Like, I love dark beers, but uh, a porter rather than a stout suits my palate, personally. Um, everyone has their personal preferences. So, we... The Johnny Smoke Porter, basically a robust porter, but with uh, 32%. Uh, Beechwood smoked malt, uh, just in order for yet again my palate to create that sweet savoury balance. Uh, we also use a number of uh, different semi-base malts in order to provide layering. So we use, say, brown malt, um, for example, in a lot of Munich, as well as ale malt to really give that depth of flavour. And I think that's what can um, really create a beer that's you know, more than sort of one-dimensional. And then in the Imperial version, is that just everything just turned up to 11? Uh, turned up in greater volume except for the smoke malt. So we didn't want to have the smoke malt become too dominating, particularly as it aged and particularly with a peaty whiskey as well. Smoke on smoke on smoke uh, in higher ABV and with a bit of oxidisation from the barrels. A uh, bit of iodine flavour for me can come through from that. So... Yeah, it smokes there, but it's probably in the background. Yeah. And what's the hope that... Uh, what, what characteristics will the beer take on uh, from the barrel? So, <laughs> it's uh, taken a lot of the whiskey, a lot more than we expected. Uh, the vanilla from the oak is coming through a lot for me personally, and I think that's uh, interesting because they're actually export barrels. They're not bourbon barrels, so... Uh, I know, obviously, that's a pretty common characteristic of any bourbon barrel-aged beer. Um, still a lot of the coffee, espresso kind of coming through. A uh, little bit more sweetness, which I was surprised at. Um, this beer still was quite dry considering the ABV. So, um, yeah, we, we deliberately wanted it so it wouldn't be a, a cloying beer on the palate. For me personally, uh, Imperial sometimes can have that little bit of sickly sweetness that um, yeah, I prefer dry beers, and uh, we're, we're pretty chuffed we've achieved that as well. And Scotty, to finish up, how long does the beer stay in the barrels? And more, which kind of leads into my next question: When can we try it? <laughs> uh, we uh, this spent about four and a half months on the barrels. So just little hundred liter barrels, so more surface area, con uh, less contact time, and uh, we. We are going to be refilling them um, to age over summer, so they'll probably get it six months that time. So it'll be interesting to see how they, uh, the characteristics they come on. And fingers crossed we'll be actually getting some the same barrels back from Lark that they used to finish the other whiskey and some more. So, um, yeah, the comparison will be good between the ones that have recently had whiskey versus not. Um, 
Beer will be coming out. We've got a bunch of launch events in October um, and all through most of the you know good independent bottle shops to be able to buy it. 500 mil wax sealed little bombers. So, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> Mate, can't wait to try it. Uh, I might just uh, call it a day now for this interview and so we can uh, pop over and, um, well, A, you know, I think you're, you're required over here to perhaps give a bit of assistance, uh, but also so we can uh, try some of it before it hits the barrels. Uh, Scotty, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Thanks, Pete. Always a pleasure, mate. Well, here we are out at Bad Shepherd in Cheltenham, and we're chatting with the founder, the head brewer, and the spiritual head of Bad Shepherd. It's none other than Derek Hales. Derek, thanks very much for joining us on Australian Brews News. Well, thanks for having me, but I disagree. My wife would be the spiritual head. <laughs> Actually, no argument for me there um, at all. Uh, mate, something exciting coming up. Uh, Bad Shepherd, I guess... Um, Look, for me, because I've been a very, very small part of, of the journey and I can remember us sitting upstairs as, as stewards, volunteer stewards, many years ago, um, looking at floor plans and, and pictures of, of what is now, um, I, I think, one of the, the coolest brew pubs in, in suburban Melbourne. Um, and you've really sort of gone from strength to strength. I think one of the things uh, that really sets you apart from the others is it's innovation, but it's all kind of, not restrained, but it's, it's sensible innovation. Talk us through um, how Bad Shepherd's been going the last couple of years, and then we'll get on to uh, the new surprise. Sounds good. Um, yeah, it's going really well, actually, and I think um, sensible innovation is probably the, exactly where we focus. Um, our effort has always been on local. We don't ship our beer anywhere out, outside of Victoria. That's on purpose. Um, we do our best. Probably over 50% of our volume is in the southeast of Melbourne, um, and we try to do our best with the local community. So over a third of our volume is still over our bar, um, and we do our best to, um, to support locals, whether it's through Karma Kegs, local events, uh, sponsoring a lot of community initiatives um, that's at, at our heart and at our core. So um, sensible innovation um, is part and parcel with that. Um, you know, we're, we, we aren't, um, I guess, like, a, like a, an awesome brewery like Boat Rocker who challenged the norm and push um, the boundaries of what beer can be. Um, we try to instead um, ch- introduce um, a lot of people that aren't as close to craft beer to uh, quality products that are uh, probably a little bit more um, on the approachable scale. Um, we, we still challenge it. We do kettle sours or double IPAs, that sort of thing. But our, but our um, for the most part, we, we take products that are approachable to our consumers and, um, and try, to, try to get more of the masses into craft beer. Um, maybe we're, we're a step above the gateway, maybe, hopefully. But, um, but we, we do our best to, to give stuff that is sensible to people around here. And Derek, uh, it's fair to say that plenty of breweries along the journey have made uh, fairly bold claims uh, as, you know, we're the first brewery to do this or this is the first beer ever to be this. Um, I heard that claim not five minutes ago, um, coming out of your very mouth. Talk, talk us through what may be uh, an Australian first. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I'm going to go go so far as to say I believe it is, but um, I think it's probably inappropriate to say it definitely is because we have not confirmed it, but we believe we have come up with the first, in better part of 100 years, the first all-Australian or all-local beer in Australia. So we're, uh, we're launching a beer that is made with um, Victorian malt um, from Barrett Burston, um, uh, from farmers right outside of Melbourne. Um, from hops, um, from uh, from the high country of of um, uh, Victoria, and uh, with a yeast from um, that's be- we brought back from uh, cryogenic stasis. Um, it was frozen in 1936 um, in the United Kingdom, and 
Uh, we had it propagated back up and we used that. It's um, the, the name of the yeast is actually Melbourne Ale Yeast. Um, so we had that propagated back up and we used that in a 4.2% really easy drinking smashable beer that uses all local ingredients and it's made locally. So um, I won't go so far as to say who the brewery is that claims the same thing, but um, this one is truly 100% local. It's not, um, it's not pretend local. And certainly the first independent brewery to do so, even if other breweries may have made similar claims and, and may have fair uh, cause to, to claim them. Talk us through, you kind of just washed over the yeast there, so 1936, that's incredible. But where, where was the yeast? Where did the yeast come from and where did you get it from? Right. So um, Peter Simons, who wrote a book uh, called Bronze Brews, um, lived in the United Kingdom some time ago and... Um, I believe in his book he mentions, um, I don't know if it's on a whim or out of interest following some visits he made to a few different locations in the United Kingdom, I looked into whether there was any Australian ale yeast, or Australian yeast in, um, in the UK um, at, a, um, at a national yeast bank or a facility. And he found one was actually lodged there in 1936 called Melbourne Ale Yeast. Um, and his subsequent research um, determined that um, literally all the breweries in Melbourne and a lot across Australia um, used this particular yeast. It, the yeast was um, uh, used for the purpose, uh, it was selectively used because it actually uh, met the palates at the time. Uh, and I don't think the palates changed here. Um, that palate was one that liked something that was uh, really easy drinking, um, that actually had a very dry uh, uh, and light finish, um, and that's pretty much what we have today. So, And the reason they did that back then was it could actually stand up to a lot of sugar. Um, so I believe they were using upwards of a third of the uh, grist was actually sugar, um, and yeast doesn't like that for the most part. Well, they do, but then the problem is they don't ingest and, and ferment the, the more complex uh, carbohydrates in the beer. So um, it's very hard to find a yeast that'll do that. Um, this yeast did. Um, and uh, I think because of that, it was a very easy drinking, smashable beer, lower on a cost base back then. And um, so everybody used it um, to make a really easy drinking beer. But um, are you able to determine where, like, was it one of the two major uh, national breweries? Was it uh, a small independent brewery? Was it a, a brewery that now, you know, no longer exists or became, you know, part of uh, one of the other big breweries or? That lodged it? Yeah. yeah um, actually, I'm not sure. Um, everything I've got in his book, I, I've yet to connect with Peter Simons. That's high on my list right now because we're very excited to launch this. And I think he's going to be closer to that knowledge base. So um, we're going to connect with Peter and understand what he found when he looked in the United Kingdom at whoever logged it. Um, it was somebody that clearly was overseas and logged it in the United Kingdom. Um, and it clearly, um, Peter got some research when it, because he does mention everybody used the yeast back then. So, But it fell out of favor. Um, and um, it's literally stopped being used. And then today, people use English ale yeast. People, a very, uh, a very popular ale yeast in, in Australia is the Chico ale yeast, which is used, made popular by Sierra Nevada. Um, it's uh, known commercially as USO5 or YAs 1056 or Cal Ale. Um, they're all effectively the same strain. Um, and literally every brewery uses that in some capacity, every, every independent brewery. Um, and um, all the other breweries, um, they tend to use something that has a semblance of the same strain um, or an evolution of it. Um, but we brought back one that was literally from that period. So, I'm thinking uh, you come up here with, at Bad Shepherd with what you would call, say, a unique house strain. You send it over to a, a yeast bank. Presumably, you want to be sure that there's some sort of protection that I can't then go and just go, and, oh, can I have some of that? 
So had the had the patent or the copyright or the uh, the rent <laughs> expired on this particular yeast? So how how were you able to um, say, hey, you know, culture it up for me? I want to pitch it. You know, I don't know actually. Um, so Peter Simons contacted White Labs um, and asked him if they would recover it from the UK. They did, and they put it into what they call their vault. It's not commercially available, but we approached them and asked them if they would propagate it up for us commercially, and they said sure. Came at a cost, um, but we were excited to do it. We thought it was a great story, so um, so we did. We paid for it, um, brought it over, brought it over here. We did one test batch, put it on on the taps, and it's um, and it's immediately our top selling beer in our. And we haven't even told anybody about it in our in our facility, so it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really know. Maybe the spirit of the yeast, or I guess the the breweries back then is similar to today. Because I'll tell you, I wouldn't I wouldn't protect it. I'd love to see everybody using it. So. And I think um, that's independent breweries. We're, we're all, you know, anybody wants my recipes, I'll give it to them. Anybody wants our yeast, I'll give it to them. And I think most breweries are that way. So maybe back then they were the same and somebody wanted to preserve it. I don't know. Hopefully. But so, they wanted to see it shared. It's a, yeah. it's a very, um, I'm trying to think of the word, but uh, phil- philanthropic yeah, it is. Uh, kind of attitude. Um, does the beer have a name yet? Presumably, if it's on, if it's on tap in the bar, you've got to be. You can't just call it tap number two. You know, mystery <laughs> surprise. Um, well, we're kind of, right now we just say the hundred percent Victorian pale ale is what we've got um, on the tap, um, and it's it's getting a lot of attention when people come in um, because they're they're excited by that story. Um, so I think that's why it sells. We don't have any visual identity. We have a working name of either Victoria Pale Ale or Vic Pale Ale. I'm partial to Vic Pale, but like we said, the um, the I, I'm I'm maybe a, a, a state head. The the real head of this business has a different point of view. <laughs> kind of likes Victoria Phil. So I don't know. We'll see see who the boss is. Because like I can see something along the lines of you know perhaps you know Bad Shepherd uh, historic ale or traditional ale perhaps. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. I, I don't. We, I don't know. We also talked about maybe doing a competition and asking people what they think and you name it. So you know. Um, I'm really hoping we find a way to uh, keep it alive. It's not viable as a long-term proposition on its own because it's so expensive to make the yeast just for us. But um, we currently are doing test batches of all of our beers to see if we can transition all of our ales to it as a house yeast. Um, We've done it with the American Pale Ale and it came out beautifully. So fingers crossed we can say that we have a house yeast that is unique to Victoria. So the cost involved, Eric, is just for those who don't know. So that's in the obviously there's transport and there's the the, the lab cost of of uh, culturing it up. But once it's over here, so for you to make that a, a house yeast, it be, it's like a volume thing. So it becomes cheaper for you once you've got it in house. Yeah, it does. Um, so we have a we have a yeast brink facility and. What we can do is we can uh, continue to reuse the, the yeast for anywhere from eight to twelve times, depending upon its viability and its um, and its and, and the amount of time that it's not um, fermenting. Um, we try to keep that to seven days or less, um, as long as it stays healthy. If we can get that kind of turnaround, that'll effectively reduce the cost of the yeast. So this, for 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 an example. The yeast of this yeast um, cost us about ten times what we'd normally pay for our yeast. Um, so the beer itself currently is not viable, 
but um, we're, we're pretty confident we're going to get this to the point it becomes a house use, and that's a great story. So if it does, um, you know, it's, it's actually good for environment anyway because we've got something local. We'll, we'll continue to propagate it. We'll, we'll manage it ourselves, um, bring the cost down as well, um, and it's great for quality as well when you can reuse yeast. So looking good but um, it's expensive at this stage. Uh, can't promise how quickly uh, the turnaround will be on this particular uh, session of uh, Beerus Conversation, but hopefully we get it up in time uh, that there was, is still some beer left. So at the moment, this beer, the all Victoria, the, possibly Australia's first all-local ingredient beer brewed by an independent brewer is available only here at Bad Shepherd out at Cheltenham. Uh, how much have you got? So how, how quick do people need, if they want to get into it, how, what time have they got? Uh, I'd say we probably have about, so we're selling, yeah, I, I think we'll probably get through the month of October and then it'll fall away. So, um, but we're looking to launch it mid-November. So you're probably okay. So long as you get out in the next three or four weeks, by the end of October, you'll be okay. Um, yeah. Packaged or just keg only over the bar? Keg only currently, but it'll be coming out 375 mil stubbies as well um, from mid-November. Derek Hales from Bad Shepherd, thanks very much for spending a bit of time with us on Radio Brews News. Thanks, Prof. Uh, that was Scotty McKinnon and Derek Hales. I also recently had the opportunity to chat with recently inducted advanced Cicerone Matt Marinich from Stomping Ground Brewery and Beer Hall. Matt is the first Australian to achieve this title, and we chat about his background in beer and hospitality, uh, the offer that lured him with his family east to manage the venue built by the guys behind the local tap house and the Gabs Festival. We also chat about the philosophy behind staff training and take a peek at what may lay ahead for Matt and the Stomping Ground team. Enjoy the conversation. Okay, Matt, so the, um, at the Cicerone program, talk us through, it's through the Ray Daniels. It is, yeah. So Ray Daniels created the program and it kind of launched in 2008. And it was based on, I guess, a wealth of knowledge that he had previously in books that he'd written. But also he identified the fact that we needed something with a bit more structure um, that uh, beer people can kind of look forward to and, and get achievements. So it follows uh, similar to the Quartermaster's style of wine um, certifications, kind of introduction uh, or... Uh, you know, introductory, certified, advanced and master. Um, and there's five main, I guess, structures within the, the program is um, keeping and serving beer. Uh, beer styles, which is a huge part of it, which kind of webs the whole thing together. Um, there is beer and food pairing, um, brewing ingredients um, and the brewing process. And then also styles and evaluation, which links closely with the BJCP or Beer Judge Certification Program. Um, so those five, I guess, units you could call inside, um, as you kind of go up different levels, expand and get larger and you need to um, have more of a wealth or wider kind of knowledge in those gaps, yeah. Backing up, I guess, just a little bit, mm. talk us through the Matt Marinich story. Uh, how, oh. how have you got to the, the point where you're a master Cicerone? Um, well, advanced Cicerone, advanced Cicerone, yeah. I, I wish one day to be a master. Um, so uh, I've... Uh, well, it started back in 1998 when I started as a, a glassy at the Sailor Anchor, I guess. Um, my brother worked in the bottle shop there and I just uh, got out of school, didn't really know what I wanted to do, tried a few things out at uni, um, but straight away he got me a job picking up glasses at the sale. So through its heydays, it was a, a fairly kind of busy pub in that kind of port city of Fremantle. Um, and having uh, you know worked there for six months picking up glasses, I was eventually trained on the bar and when you do that, you got uh, to do beer school with the brewers, which was kind of three hours of this is beer, you go through the brewery, this is ingredients, taste this beer, talk about it. And I was uh, blown away. It was um, 
the brewer at the time there, a guy called Bluey, um, red-headed guy, obviously, um, took us, uh, took that group of us, that, I guess, internship of people through the brewery, and then you worked on the bar, and that was your kind of year that you started. And it was, I was hooked from then, that was it. I was, uh, I worked on and off uh, at the Sail and Ink uh, from 98 to 2010, um, working in, um, you know, I worked in the brewery, I worked in the cocktail bars, um, food uh, out the back as a supervisor, um, and then eventually worked my way up through management to kind of venue manager there, um, which uh, was, I was really proud of what we did with that venue, um, even when they did have to close down the brewery. Um, but... Um, we kind of uh, went from strength to strength, so that's that's kind of where my my beer knowledge was kind of born. Were you, um, were you aware as a you know a, a naive, wide-eyed, mm. um, bushy-tailed glassy? Mm. Um, I guess the history and, and the place that the Salon Anchor had mm. in terms of its its position in well, what we now know to be you know the craft beer community for sure. Yeah, they had um, there was a bit of history associated with you know when you started there. You know the first. Uh, microbrewery in the Southern Hemisphere in 1984, obviously going through America's Cup and that kind of stuff as well. So it was the first place to have kind of, you know, English IPA on a hand pump, um, all that kind of stuff, which you just take for granted at Staffies. Um, now seems something that's, you know, you need to find that stuff. It's, it's not always there. Um, but as the years went by, I kind of realised how special those times were, I think, um, and still, well, recall on it when I'm talking about it today. So, um, yeah, pretty kind of passionate times, yeah. So what brought you east? Um, so look, I think uh, knowing that what the local tap house uh, guys, being you know um, Guy and Steve and JJ Justin did um, did with the local tap house, I always wanted to work there. Um, we chatted about when the uh, Darlinghurst venue kind of opened. Um, we kind of chatted around then about me possibly coming over and. It kind of wasn't the right time with our first son being born and we kind of stayed uh, in WA and, and relaxed there. Um, and then when uh, Stomping Ground started to get closer to being a real a real um, project that was close to opening, um, we were uh, chatting more and more. Uh, it was actually about seven, ten past seven one night, eating dinner at the table and got a text message from Steve, um, which was you know always a little bit cheeky when you get text messages from Steve. Um, it was kind of, you know, what are you up to? Do you know anyone in WA who'd uh, be interested in this role? It's kind of an interesting little thing that we're doing. Um, and I said, uh, yeah, I'll have a think and get back to you. And I guess the rest was history. <laughs> at that time, did you have anyone else in mind? Or was it always, no, I'm, I'm snapping? Look, I, I, I was, I pretty much wanted to do it. I had a quick think and then thought, well, this could actually be a nice ticket to, um, to getting, uh, getting east and, and getting over to Melbourne and having a look at everything, so, yeah. So talk us through, uh, obviously, I guess most people will know, you know, the Stomping Ground story, so mm. let's sort of skip ahead. Mm. At, at what point, um, how did the Cicerone, Cicerone program sort of come about? Was sure. it something that, uh, you know, the, the guys, I know the, the Stephen Guy and mm-hmm. Justin were very keen that, mm. and, this is, and this showed right from the start from the local tap house, what really differentiated mm. them was that, their key asset was not the building. It wasn't the the twenty taps. It wasn't the um, you know the access to beers that just weren't around anywhere else. The key asset, uh, as far as the, the philosophy went, mm. was always the people. The people were, were really what were, what were going to drive the business. One hundred percent. And uh, that was something that um, in my interview when I came over and, and chatted with them and at length, I realised over time 
that was their main thing. It was it was the the experience of you know the staff member and the guest and the people involved. And from that, one of the main things is you know the three guys are really passionate about training. I'm I'm as equally as passionate about. So we. When we started recruiting staff here, we had a pretty heavy kind of training structure involved, and more specifically, the beer uh, line of training um, was closely netted to the Cicerone kind of syllabus and what we wanted to do there. We also realised that we didn't want everyone to, you know, everyone must get this certification, you must be a Cicerone as well. That's not, not what it was about. It was about making, um, working out what was relevant for that and applying that to our weekly training for beer. So we meet every um, every Thursday from three to five every week since we've opened, and that's our beer training schedule. Um, and we've had different cicerones that host beer training, uh, all guys from the brewery, um, and we focus on either breweries uh, or style or ingredients or any of those kind of things. Uh, and then we relate it to what we're actually doing on tap. So if we do a, a, a week on black IPAs, it'll probably be because we just launched a black IPA, and then we taste them together vertically and have a kind of chat about it. So. It was about applying real beer knowledge to be useful to the staff in the bar. Um, and we found that the staff just loved it, much like all of us have who've kind of studied a little bit of beer and passion about it. They um, kept coming week after week and we'd have 15 plus people at training every week. Um, and it was something that really, really worked. Then started getting people saying, look, I want to do the next, the next level. How do I become a certified Cicerone? Um, so then we started study groups for that. Uh, and since then we've raised, I guess you could say, uh, eight Cicerones um, through this program that now work within the company either at Tap House or Stomping Run. So, um, yeah, it's been a great time. And I know from my experience in, in hospitality and speaking to, to Steve and Guy mm. in sort of, I guess, what we'll call the second phase of, mm. of the Tap House, um, I firmly believe that I need to put in place, I, I need to hire people who know the things I can't teach. Mm. Because the rest I can teach. At the end of the day, mm. without being unfair to anybody who works in hospitality, mm. but I can teach a monkey how to pull a beer yep. properly. Yep. But knowing, having that peripheral vision, knowing when somebody's maybe a bit unsure of something, yep. or Needs knowing, a, a yeah, push, something's yeah. been waiting at the door a bit too long, mm. all that sort of stuff. Yep. That sort of stuff you really, you really sort of can't teach. Oh no, no. I think understanding, having that base knowledge of this is how you pour a beer, this is how you do different things, and then working out the kind of right blend of staff that you need. Yep. You know, we need we need eccentric people, we need introverts, we need people who can do all these different things, and that right kind of meld of, of team really makes uh, an award-winning team, which, you know, we have such a high-performance um, environment that we've created, and it's not me, it's not any other one person, we've all done it together, um, that's created a, a real kind of special team here. And, um, and the key lesson, I guess, Matt, is, mm. uh, and particularly for, for so many people who are uh, either thinking of, of opening brew pubs or mm. hospitality venues, you know, craft, de mm. dedicated venues, you don't need beer nerds. Like no. They, somebody with a, who's just a, a keen student of life, who, yep. who just wants to learn, mm -hmm. will pick up enough about beer to be knowledgeable enough to, to help a, a guest who's, um, you know, perhaps struggling a little bit. But at yep. the end of the day, I'm guessing a lot of you guests here, and the number of times I've been here, you can tell they're not beer nerds. Oh yeah, there, yeah. Are, there are plenty of them dotted amongst the crowd. Yep, one hundred percent. They are. These are people who, and you get you know all walks of life from people who come here, love the venue, and don't drink beer, and that's fine as well. To the guy that comes in and always Corona, which is fine as well. Look, we don't have that, but we do have this, and you taste some beer with them. To the guy that wants to come in and drink 
30% barrel aged, you know, Slovakian IPA or whatever it is, you know. They and um, wants to know what the and wants was to, yeah, day. what did you use in there to do that <laughs> and how many seconds has it been in barrel and those kind of things. So we hope that we could cater, our staff can cater to the to the volume or not of knowledge that the guest kind of requires. Um, and you're right, to identify that in the person as well. If you come in and ask for two stubbies of VB, I'm not going to try and make you drink a West Coast IPA. We, you know, we'll probably we'll find something in the middle for you, uh, and we'll taste some beer and talk about it. I think, you know, we've got, I think we've released 148 or 158 beers since we've been open. At any given time, we have between 18 and 22 beers on tap, and you know that can be daunting for people, which we don't want. You know, those styles and those kind of array of of uh, flavours are there to say look beer can be anything it's about an experience uh, and hopefully you know you like this or here's a different beer you might not have tried sours before um, so with that comes a level of understanding for the guest as well um, I pour a lot of lager like we pour a lot of pale ale and that's fine too because what I want to drink on my day off when I'm relaxing in the sun pint of lager I'd love that so yeah Matt talk us through the um, I'll call it the, uh, the, the traffic light uh, yes, sister. absolutely. So Steve Jeffers' baby, and, and I know he's been pushing this for true yep, false. Yep, that's all true. Yep. yep, and he is super passionate about it. And, and anyone who's been to Gabs will have seen now. We'll understand. Yeah, a similar kind of system. And there's true. a good reason for it. It's because it works. It's having that many beers on a list. Um, we break the beers up by ingredients. So we have a malt list, a hop list, and a yeast list. So they're the most prevalent flavors in that beer. But then breaking it down again to the traffic light system of green being your laid-back beers, lagers, pale ales, those kind of things. Um, amber is the kind of stepping up in flavour. Uh, red IPAs, porters, things that are uh, you know a bit more flavour and alcohol to them. Yeah, might not have tried it. Yeah, and then uh, red being I guess adventurous. So this is uh, barrel-aged stuff, imperial stouts, sours, uh, anything that. People might not have heard of before, but they can have a taste. So, and we serve all the beers in uh, anything from 100 mils up to one litre serves. So if you just want to try two or three beers in 100 mils, or um, you can just buy it and go for it, and we can talk to you, or you can take it back to your table in the beer garden and relax. So, and far be it for me to, to pump up Steve Jeffers' tyres because really he, he doesn't need doesn't need it right but now. No, <laughs> absolutely inspired because I guess what that does is it it's. I've seen some lists, I guess, where it can sort of say, you don't know what you're on about, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what it is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is kind of, it, it's a very gentle way of saying, mm. wherever you kind of feel, either mm. where you are on your general beer journey, your craft or where, beer journey, where you yeah. feel right now, mm-hmm. at this moment in time, with this group of people that you happen to have popped in to, to the stomping ground with, mm. um, it just caters to everyone. It works really well, and we've found, you know, we've made little, very little changes to the structure and our menu since we've opened, beer-wise. Uh, and it's because it worked, you know, it, it's working really well. One thing I'm really keen to ask, have any beers moved from, say, amber to, to green or uh, from green to amber? Yes, like, yes, they have over time. So um, are, are tastes changing in the, in the couple of years that Stomping Ground's mm, been open now? Have mm. you noticed more and more people, I guess, just being more aware of what a pale ale is or what an IPA is? Look, absolutely. I think uh, as we go and enter into kind of um, spring and summer, we see a... Um, people wanting hoppy beers more and sour beers more so that list kind of increases and you know we've just kind of come out of some colder months so we've still got a quite quite a few dark kind of high volume uh, high alcohol sorry beers around um, but you can take um, uh, watermelon smash our, our sour uh, uh, fruited kind of goes that we have that we released last summer 
it was a bit alien to quite a few people and the first kind of two months of sales were a bit unusual until people tried it and then you'd have guests coming in saying you've got to try this watermelon beer and you know uh, people ordering Aperol spritzes were ordering watermelon you know goes so um, and we just released that again the watermelon smash and the guava smash in cans and on tap and uh, people are loving it it's amazing so tastes are definitely evolving and changing um, and I think just to be aware that that's happening and not push people into that change it's kind of provide something for them I think it's important getting back to the um, the the Cicerone mm. and the and the staff mm. uh, training side of things. There's always that risk that if you have people who kind of are recognised for a certain level of um, mm. achievement, mm. that others can kind of go, well, I don't need to know as much stuff now because mm. they kind of do. Mm. But there's also then that opportunity to say, I'm going to hang around, I'm going to be a sponge, I'm going to hang around this guy and, and, and learn. How do you ensure, I guess, that the knowledge that you guys have got doesn't sort of stay, mm. pardon the pun, but tapped? Yeah. You, know, you, you want to share it. It's, it's quite tough. I mean, you need to... Uh, we've identified, I guess, firstly, the people that, um, that want to move up and are hungry for it. And then you have people that aren't, and that's fine as well. And these are... I you just know, want to come in, I want to clock in. Yeah, I just want to do it. And, you know, be on, uni students, law students, or people <clears throat> studying or might have a, another um, position, might be an architect, they do two, two shifts on the bar. That's fine as well. As long as you have that base knowledge there, totally fine. The ones that are really hungry for it um, is kind of what I was mentioning before with that high performance like education kind of environment where they're they're early to training. They're sitting there. You've got to tell them to you know stop studying before they shift at the bar and just come on and work. And it's they'll talk forever to guess about beer, which can be a good and bad thing depending on the time. Um, so working out when someone's hungry for knowledge is great, and then you just need to keep feeding that nicely. Um, the you know, the beer training, I must have hosted just about every beer training in the first probably eight months of us being open, and I've only hosted uh, three or four in the last, you know, uh, probably six months. Everyone we've trained up has trained the next generation of people, um, so now we have a team of four Cicerones that rotate through and host that training, um, and in the very um, well-presented way as well, it's not geeking out every session. Um, you know, we did, uh, went back to ingredients recently and just went through what is malt, how does malt make sugar in beer and those real basic things that um, often in beer venues gets brushed over. It's just like, yeah, sure, I know what well, malt is. Yeah, it's fine. That, so you better know that. So we're going to yeah. talk about uh, enzyme activity at 68 degrees. It's like, well, no, no. Let's get back to actual basics about what we want to know. Um, so identifying that and working with, with the people that are really hungry for that is great fun. Great fun. Yep. Matt, uh, let's jump ahead. We're talking uh, at this very same table, table mm-hmm. 87 yep. at the back of uh, the mm-hmm. stomping ground. Mm-hmm. In, with, the, with the roof back today, which absolutely. is absolutely magnificent, mm-hmm. uh, two years' time, mm. what's the biggest change you've noticed? Biggest change? Um, so two years' time, yep. what are we talking about? We're talking about... Uh, well, I have a personal goal to, to become a master before I'm 40. So whether that happens personally for me or not, I, you know... Um, I'd like to see, uh, you know, beer training obviously continue. A team uh, increased the number of Cicerones we have on staff um, and working closely to kind of push, we will have more staff by then as well, and working closely to make sure they uh, stay in tune with what the guest needs um, and and kind of moving forward from there, yeah. And knowing Stephen Guy as I do, I'm yeah. sure also it'll involve you, um, you know, training staff in in four different brew pubs around. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Look, if if 
if that were to happen, which I would love, uh, I could I could uh, drive around training people all day and creating teams. I'd love that. That would be great. Yeah. Well, mate, you're uh, going to need plenty of energy for that. I'm going to yes, let you get back yeah. to it because the doors are just about to open. This is true. Matt Marinich, thanks very much for joining us on Bruce News. Mate, thank you very much. Don't forget, if you like what we do here at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You'll find details in the show notes. You can also review us on iTunes or whatever your favourite podcasting service happens to be. Let us know what you think and help others find and discover our shows. Finally, you can tell us what you think about what's going on in the beer industry by emailing us at producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive in return, as by way of thanks, a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our very good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of great Australian beer. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because, as you may have heard, beer is a conversation. Beer is a conversation.